Hey everyone, this is Ryan. And I'm Katie Jones. And today we have a very special guest on Is This Adulthood? As you know, on this podcast, we love to talk about topics relating to millennials in their 20s, as well as speak to guests that we're curious about. And I'm so excited to have headmistress Shahrazad, who is an established professional dominatrix in the Toronto BDSM scene and has been for over 15 years and has actually won awards for her work, been on TV. You may have seen her around and we're so excited to have the headmistress here with us on Is This Adulthood? So welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Ryan, what are we talking about? Headmistress, what are we speaking about today? I know this is something that I going into this podcast, don't know much about to be very educational on a personal level. Yeah. So I know that this is something that um, our listeners have brought up before as a topic. Uh, and also something that I know we've talked about wanting to explore a little bit more. So I'm interested in learning more from the headmistress about the BDSM community and questions that people may have out there. So Shahrazad, I would love for you to start and explain uh, a little bit more for people that may not know, uh, you know, what BDSM stands for and what that community is all about to start us off. Yeah, for sure. So um, most people uh, may have encountered the word BDSM or even the word kink um, in mainstream media, um, most most recently probably around discussions uh, about the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, um, which I really didn't like and <laughs> doesn't actually um, provide a... Um, an accurate description of what it what this kind of um, lifestyle is, but uh, you may have heard the terms, and so BDSM means uh, bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. And so there are a lot of things there that are contained under that one umbrella. And it's important to know that in to be into BDSM, you don't have to be into everything. So there are a lot of people who think, oh, well, I don't really find it erotic to um, experience pain or to give pain because that's the stereotype, right, about uh, people into BDSM is that they're into some really intense uh, kinds of whippings and, and spankings and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, some people are, but... Uh, more so what this kind of play is about is is it's uh, sensual and psychological control or the combination of sensual and psychological control that really um, is a very potent fantasy for many people. And when you hear the word kink, um, you know, uh, some people talk about kink as though there's some kind of objective standard of um, who is kinky. And what I want to say is that uh, kinky, as far as I define it, is creative sexuality. So anytime you're doing anything that's just kind of outside the norm of um, mainstream, heterosexual, lights off, uh, sex for the purposes of having babies, <laughs> you are basically um, engaging in something kinky. And something can be kinky to you and not necessarily kinky to some th- somebody else, but that doesn't make it not kinky. So um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of, a, of an umbrella of what we're talking about here. That's very interesting. I want to pick up on something that you were talking about. You mentioned the lifestyle. Um, And when I was kind of thinking about the BDSM community, I thought that would be more kind of what you decide to do are 
looking for sexual pleasure. But the word lifestyle, it makes me think of it's also adopted into your everyday behavior. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a really, uh, it's a really interesting uh, question because, um, you know, BDSM plays different roles for different people in different contexts. For some people, BDSM is what they do. And for other people, BDSM is who they are. So it's the difference between an activity that you do in the bedroom because you find it erotic or enjoyable um, and identifying as, for example, a dominant or a submissive or a switch, um, mm-hmm. you know, or an age player or some, any, any one of the roles that one can take up within this community. There are some people for whom that forms a core part of their identity. And so it factors into the way that they live their life um, more so than somebody who just is like, you know, one weekend turns to their partner and says, hey, you know, let's experiment with the handcuffs and the rope and see what happens because <laughs> um, yeah. it's kind of fun, right? And I feel like that's how maybe some people are introduced uh, to the community as well. And uh, one thing that I wanted to mention was you know, I had mentioned in the intro about how much experience you have in the community. One thing that I forgot to mention was that the fact that you actually uh, founded and now you're the owner and headmistress of the Ritual Chamber in Toronto and how you've even led uh, the first of its kind, first ever Hungarian BDSM conference and you had attendees from all over the world. So I'm curious as to your journey that had led up to this point where you're a business owner, but touching on Katie's point, like if you don't mind sharing in your life, is this something that you're practicing outside of your business practice as well with intimate partners? Because, you know, there's people out there, for example, that are registered massage therapists, and maybe the last thing they want to do when they get home is give their partner a massage because they did it all day right? Yes. Yes. No, that's absolutely a great point. So let's clarify at this point that there are a couple of different streams within which which one can engage with BDSM. There is the lifestyle community, which is um, an alternative lifestyle community in which um, people who are kinky of all kinds of different, um, you know, colors and stripes and descriptions and and interests uh, come together uh, for socials, for parties, um, for workshops, for social engagements, just generally speaking, that um, that revolve around kink. So much in the same way that any other um, specific interest group would get together to, to explore what it is that they enjoy doing. Um, uh, the lifestyle community is that way. And there are many people who date within the lifestyle community um, and have relationships within the lifestyle community with other people who are kinky. And that is, um, that is one way that people enter into uh, this community. Um, then the, the other way that people can interact with BDSM, sometimes for the first time, is through professional BDSM services. And so professional BDSM services are uh, sort of the, the can, can look like many things, but typically the classic is, you know, the, the dominatrix who uh, does uh, charge for her professional services. And typically she is somebody who is skilled in a wide variety of different kinds of kink and being able to facilitate them in a safe and engaging way that is a really... Um, for many people is their gateway into these kinds of experiences because sometimes it's hard to find people who know what they're doing 
um, yeah. or who are willing to play and, and so on. Um, and so uh, for many people who really need or want strongly to explore this kind of play, it provides a safe space for them to do that. Then there are people who are professionals who are also lifestyle players. Yeah. So, and I do fall into that category. So I do have um, lifestyle dynamics and lifestyle uh, relationships that um, are non-professional relationships, which do have a power dynamic. And they fulfill me very much. And I would say that the kind of work that I do as a dominatrix um, is very much focused on um, helping people to realize themselves, helping people to develop themselves, to learn about themselves and so on. And I do that. Uh, it's kind of my, my calling and my mission um, wow. to do that through the medium of BDSM. But it doesn't need to get that intense. <laughs> you can yeah. also have just a fun, you know, lifestyle play dynamic with somebody you get together with once a week and, you know, you, you do, you do fun kinky things. So, um, but I do, I do straddle both worlds. And, um, when I was hold, when I was, uh, sort of doing a lot of community building and, and so on, when I won the title of uh, international person of leather in 2016, um, I was, uh, indeed traveling to a lot of different places where, um, different kinds of communities uh, all over the world that had BDSM as their focus uh, and helping them to uh, to develop different events, um, helping them to uh, find um, access to education, to kink education. So I was doing a lot of teaching as well while I was traveling. Um, and uh, there is incredible commonality between BDSM communities all over the world, which was kind of interesting to uh, find out. So when did this all start for you then? Because obviously, like Ryan was touching on, you've been in this industry for 15 plus years with all of your acclamations. When did this community become a part of your life? Were you at a younger age, in your early adulthood? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, when I was in my teens, uh, my early teens, I remember uh, my, my, my most treasured possessions at that time were a pair of Doc Martin boots and uh, my leather jacket. And I had I had no reason, <laughs> I had no reason to like those things other than the fact that they brought me comfort, the smell, the touch, the, the way they looked. Um, I loved them. And, and so I would, I would say that for, I've had a, I've had a leather fetish for a very long time. Um, when I was in my, uh, teens, well, actually let me rewind a little bit. I was, I was raised in a fairly, uh, strict religious household. And um, within that, a lot of my early years grew up within a structure where there were a lot of rules. <laughs> you know, do this, don't do that, don't do this, this is permitted, this is not permitted. And um, I do believe that uh, as erotic beings, because, uh, well, as I say, as erotic beings, we grow up um, being influenced by our surroundings. And then as, as teenagers, as our sexual development starts to form, I think we kind of eroticize whatever our, uh, our struggles are within, I mean, this is not, you know, quantifiable anywhere, but it's based in what I've observed over the time that I've been in the scene. Mm -hmm. And I know it's certainly true for me is that I kind of eroticized the power dynamics of rules <laughs> and protocol <laughs> and, um, you know, do this and don't do this. And this is allowed and this is not allowed and so on. And, and, um, 
And th- that kind of, even though when I fantasize about it, it's completely out of a religious context and it's in, you know, far more fun, um, <laughs> interesting scenarios. Um, I think I just, I grew up with that and it, it, uh, it stuck with me. Um, and then as I uh, started to explore more sexually and, and started to be you know, exposed to more different kinds of media and different communities and so on, um, and I, I came out as queer when I was uh, uh, 15, so also started engaging a lot more with the queer community. Um, and uh, I found that there was a lot of sort of symbolism and iconography from the BDSM uh, influence or the leather community influence um, within the queer community, and just was very attracted to it. Um, you know, the leather, the leather meerkaps, the uh, the harnesses, and the um, just the, the rougher kinds of interaction, the the military type uh, aesthetic, uniforms, that kind of thing. Uh, just, just I just gravitated towards. Them. <laughs> um, and I have a quick question. I don't mean to yeah. interrupt you, but go for it. Um, having been raised in kind of a tighter ruled household, when yeah. you started to realize that you were attracted to this kind of way of living and the, the dominance and the leather and the harnesses, did you fight that or did you embrace it and just kind of explore it wholeheartedly? Oh, well, that's a great um, question. Yeah, that is a great question. So for me, the, the line that there, the theme that went through all of that stuff uh, was for me uh, being an empowered sexual woman because I'd grown up in an environment in which uh, there was no, uh, there were no role models for women who wanted to be assertive sexually, who wanted to explore their fantasies sexually, who didn't want to have sex um, in strictly in the context of um, having children. And so I would say my ability to, um, to accept the dominant or the sexually dominant part of myself uh, came to the degree that I could let go of my conditioning around um, women and sexuality and power. I hadn't conceived of a role for myself until I saw, um, you know, femdoms and, and dominatrixes and those kinds of people fascinated me because up until that point, I hadn't known really that I could occupy such a powerful, um, empowering uh, role as a sexual woman where I didn't have to deny my desires. Absolutely. And it's that. not always a man's world. And that it's not only, yeah, exactly. And, and I, could, I could create a space in which, in fact, it was the opposite. So many of the, uh, although I don't, I don't exclusively play with cisgendered men, um, those, those times in which I did was such a subversion of um, our normal uh, power dynamics within society that I just found it to be very healing and very, um, uh, it, it just gave it gave a new meaning to who I could be and how I could engage in, uh, in a society that, that does wield power imbalance um, in a, in a non-consensual way, but I could do it in a way that was empowering in a consensual way. Fantastic. Yeah. That's amazing. And that actually ties into my next question. I mean, I have so many questions for you and you're so interesting uh, to talk to. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing your experience. I wanted to touch on the, the notion of consent because I, 
I find that there's a misconception with the BDSM community because it's rough at times or, you know, not always, but for some people it is. Um, and, you know, there's been cases, uh, I'm not sure if you've probably have seen this, but where someone's, you know, seriously hurt or, or killed someone and they've blamed it on, oh, well, she was into rough sex. And I think yeah. that it gives BDSM a bad name because sometime, most of the time, people that are actually involved with this community and people that I know that are involved with this in community, consent is number one at all yeah. times. And I would love for you to talk about that because I think that maybe sometimes the community may get a bad name, whereas people that are actually involved with community, that's like, that's their number one, uh, you know, for most people. If you don't mind talking from that perspective about consent and you know maybe even the notion of safe words is that is that something that you would be practicing with mm -hmm. yeah that's a, a really really important um conversation topic um and it is true that um because as as i would say that as bdsm becomes more um mainstream or more people know about it uh I, you do see more cases of people ascribing what is actually violence and abuse to BDSM and saying, oh, well, we were into that or she was into that or he was into that and therefore um, it's not abuse. And um, what I can tell you is that when you look at um, people in the BDSM community playing, let's say at a play party or, you know, scenes and that kind of thing, um, what it looks like from the outside is, is almost never ever what it looks like behind the scenes setting that scene up. So when you see uh, a scene in which, you know, somebody's blindfolded and they're getting whipped or they're getting flogged and, um, you know, or, and, or any one of a number of other things is going on, um, what you see is the action. What you don't see is the intensive negotiation that took place between those two people to create a safe container um, within which that experience could happen in a way that was empowering and desired by both people. Yeah. So what happens within the BDSM scene is that it is true that we uh, take consent very seriously. And in fact, one of the, one of the fastest ways to know whether somebody is um, a, a genuine practitioner of BDSM or is sort of hiding out under that umbrella um, but is actually engaging in abuse is is to what degree are they concerned with the welfare and well-being of everybody involved in the scene not just their own desires yeah. Um, so every scene is done. And when I say scene, I mean, you know, period of time in which in which two or more people have consented to uh, to enact some kind of power exchange um, that within that uh, that scene, everything that takes place is explicitly negotiated. Mm. Um, you know, so that the person who is receiving or the person who is submissive, uh, they have said to their top or their dominant, um, this is the degree to which I want to experience this. I can take sensation at, at such and such a level, but I don't want it to go beyond this level. Um, mm. You know, don't hit me on this part of my body because that's a trigger for me, but this part of my body is okay. Right? right. So there, there is quite an intensive discussion that happens there before any play takes place. 
And would that it, be like a, like a yeah. contract negotiation or just an open, honest, thorough conversation? It could be either. It could be anywhere from, um, you know, a 10 minute conversation that somebody has um, with somebody at a play party. They just met who they want to play with and they're just they're getting enough uh, information and knowledge from the person to be able to have an experience with them safely all the way to somebody who, for example, wants to live in a, uh, what we call a 24 seven, uh, lifestyle arrangement in which, uh, they are submissive, let's say, and then the other person is the dominant all the time. Um, and they might put together a written contract for how that will look and what that will and will not look like, um, what boundaries will not get crossed and so on and so forth. So that relationship that would be established for people that are doing it like in a 24 seven situation, it would be like every time those two people get together, they, I don't know if saying falling into those roles is like disrespectful. I just mean like, they, they take on their negotiation every time that they're around one another. So one another. So, so what I would, what I'll, I'll say about 24 uh, seven uh, lifestyle power exchange uh, type relationships is that it is only a small, small, small percentage of people um, who want that kind of a dynamic to be a part of their life at all times. Mm. And even even those people are not actually doing 24-7 lifestyle power exchange. You know, we have jobs, we have kids, we have responsibilities, we have pets. Um, and, you know, life doesn't always fit in neatly to a power exchange. So usually in most um, uh, power exchange relationships that I have seen, there are carve-outs, which means that there are places in which the power exchange does not apply. Um, to enable both people to to live their lives, right? Because unless you're independently wealthy and living in a medieval castle somewhere on a hill and, you know, don't ever have to work a day in your life, it's very hard to actually maintain a power exchange 24-7. Yeah. Absolutely. And with the dynamic where it's, um, you know, more of a scene, I guess you talked about, maybe in the lifestyle um, role as well, can you talk a little bit about safe words and uh, if that is that actually, you know, a thing within the community and how do you develop those safe words and how often do people enact those words? For sure. Absolutely. Let's talk about safe words. So um, when I teach people who are getting involved in the in the scene for the first time or they're mentoring folks, it's really important to know um, for, for a submissive and also for a dominant. So a dominance can use safe words as well, that they have a way of opting out of the scene during the scene if it gets too intense or if they've gone as far as they want to go that day or if um, they, their body can't handle it anymore or if they got emotionally triggered or any one of a number of things that they have a safe word to be able to stop the scene. And in that way, the bottom or the submissive is is actually in control of what's going on. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah, a dominant 
may also use a safe word. If they are um, uncomfortable, you know, or they got to a point where they got triggered or they need to stop or they're tired or there's something, you know, there's some other reason why they need to stop. So it's, there's a lot of onus put on the submissive using the safe word when actually, first of all, the dominant can use it as well. But the other thing I want to say is that safe words are not always verbal. So for example, if you're, um, well, let's actually, let's talk about verbal safe words first. So verbal safe word, you want to use a word that is simple enough that you're going to remember it, but that is not a word that is going to come up in the, in the, in the scene itself. So some people, for example, like doing like a non-consent scene in which they want to yell, no, no, don't do that to me. No, no. But actually they really want it to happen. Um, so it doesn't work in that context for no to be the safe word because the top won't know whether they actually want to stop or whether they um, are, are just sort of role-playing within the scene. So you want to pick a word that's completely unrelated. So, you know, banana, pineapple, Swiffer, I don't know, pick a, pick a word <laughs> that isn't <laughs> likely to come up. If you're going to be doing any kind of play that involves restricting the person's ability to speak, then a nonverbal safe word, like, for example, having the person snap their fingers or having the person hold a set of keys and drop it if they need to stop, because keys are noisy in the top, you know, even if there's music playing or it's at a party, uh, the person will generally be able to hear it. Um, you know, grunting three times through the gag or something like that in, in quick succession. So there are... Yeah, you definitely want to set up a nonverbal safe word as well. And then I also want to say that um, just because uh, when you start really actually playing intensively, um, the sub can go into a place called subspace where they actually may uh, be so altered that they kind of lose their ability to, to, to speak. They may become... Um, they're, they're just, it's kind of like a, a pleasant trance state in which they may not necessarily remember to use their safe words. So um, a submissive not using a safe word is not um, an excuse for a dominant to take a scene way past the point of um, common sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So a dominant can call the scene as well if they see that the dom the submissive has gone quite far out and um, they're approaching what the submissive stated limits were, but the submissive hasn't safe worded yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to just ask a quick question. Um, obviously, you have a lot of experience working with a variety of different people over mm -hmm. the years. Um, do you find that you see more couples entering, um, whether they've practiced in this community or they're, they're new and want to explore, or do you find that it invites more single people? Um, I would say that in the last, just strictly as a professional, in the last three years, I've definitely seen an influx of, of couples of all descriptions, and I've seen an influx of single women. Um, which was never actually for for many 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 years uh, that wasn't the case, 
And um, like now I would say about 25% of, uh, of my clients are, um, are, are, are single women. Um, and, you know, and, and they, they, so I don't know if it's becoming more culturally acceptable for women to uh, actualize their desires in this way. Um, which I've, I'm really pleased. I'm actually really pleased about. I think it's it's wonderful. And and yes, couples as well. So and when we play with couples, um, it's it can take a lot of different. Um, it can look a lot of different ways. We'll say. And my job as a professional with a couple is to facilitate what the couple wants to experience. So couples, a lot of couples are afraid because they're like, oh my God, we're having this other person and they're coming in and what are they going to do? And are they going to do something sexual? And, and is it going to go beyond our boundaries and so on? And, and, and so from my perspective as a, as a dom, um, what I want to know is what roles do you guys want to play? And what role do you want me to play? How would you like me to facilitate the best kind of experience for you? Um, and that can take an educational tone, like maybe one person wants to learn how to top their partner better, um, or one person wants to watch as their partner is dominated to see, you know, how I do it. Or it could be that both of them want to submit, um, or it could be, I mean, there's so many different um, ways in which that looks. But it's, it's really an honor to be invited into people's uh, uh, relationships in order to, to teach them and to facilitate these kinds of experiences. And when okay. people are coming to your business, um, is that always, what, whether they have experience or they're learning to learn, does that mean that they are looking for someone coming into the room, such as you being a headmistress, or they're just maybe looking for the different toys that you can supply to play with um, or just you being in the room to help teach or does dominatrix usually mean that someone's coming in and involving themselves? Yeah, it's a, so it's a really good question. But actually what we do is quite diverse. So for, at the Ritual Chamber, what we offer are a number of different things. We offer rentals where people like couples and so on can rent the space and have access to all the theme rooms and most of the toys uh, for their own personal play. And that is, um, that is available to them for rent. They do not have to have um, one of us staff present there with them, although we will be there to give them a tour in the beginning. Okay. Then you can um, access my services as a kink educator uh, and as a kink consultant, whereby um, a couple might come in and they say, okay, I, we want to learn how to do spanking properly. And I will um, take them through a, a private lesson, essentially, in how to do spanking. It might involve uh, talking about it. It might involve demonstrating it. It might involve them practicing it. And then we also in we also do professional sessions. So up in a professional session um, is typically where um, I I in co-creation with the submissive coming in, um, we all create a scene together in advance, and then I facilitate that scene. Uh, during the time that we have together. And that is a classical BDSM scene of some sort. So we don't, 
uh, lean into the territory of what would be construed as mainstream sex, but we're exploring things like, for example, rope bondage or spanking or gags or mummification or um, bondage or, uh, you know, all kinds of different BDSM types of activities, sometimes role play um, and, and so on. Awesome. And Brian, I know you're probably dying for a question, but I just want to ask one quick one because uh, you brought up theme rooms. So there's different rooms that would be of different themes, I guess. Yeah. So that's, that's not something that's, um, you're necessarily going to find everywhere in, in, <laughs> uh, in, in these kinds of establishments, but certainly in my own, I have found that I really like having kind of like a set that helps to transport me into another reality and helps to uh, transport the person I'm playing with into another reality. So at the Ritual Chamber, we have uh, a number of different theme rooms um, with specific kinds of furniture that allow you to actually have an immersive experience because your environment is supporting what it is that you're doing. It's, it's supporting the fantasy exploration, right? So we have a Victorian parlor, we have a modern dungeon, we have a medical clinic, we have a small classroom, and we have a bondage bedroom. Um, and so scenes can take place in any of those rooms. And actually, when you rent the space, you have access to all of the rooms for your private use. Uh, because the rooms are not soundproof from each other, but it is a self-enclosed studio. So you get, uh, you can try them all if you want, <laughs> or you might have a particular favorite. That's so cool. Yeah. My next question would be, how would couples approach it if there's one person that's into a certain kink? Like maybe even it could be choking or being tied up or something like that. But the other partner, it doesn't, it doesn't really get them off. It doesn't turn them on. But, you know, for the one partner, that could make a huge difference in the bedroom. What would you say to a couple like that? I see couples actually like that all the time. <laughs> And it's super common. And what I would say is, you know, we talk a lot about in society about people, you know, couples who have different sex drives. We don't talk a lot about couples who have um, fundamentally different sexual interests and turn-ons. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I want to say to that couple is that the idea that we are all supposed to be turned on by the same thing in order to have this sort of like most ideal romantic erotic um, engagement that you know everybody has to find the same things arousing is a myth. Sexual diversity and the diversity of things that people um, that people do find arousing is vast. And so, if you can hold first of all that um, you and you and your partner are perfect exactly as you are, them with their desire for whatever it is, let's say choking, and you without a desire for choking, um, that doesn't make one of you wrong and the other of you right. Mm -hmm. And once you've acknowledged that difference, um, you're in a position to be for the person who is not into the thing to be able to say, is this something that I want to engage in for my partner because it gives them pleasure? Uh, or is this something that I uh, don't know how to do properly and scares me because I don't want to hurt them? Or is this something that 
um, I fundamentally can't get my head around, would make me feel like a terrible person if I did it, um, and I don't want to do it. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to find people anywhere on that spectrum. So if the person is willing to uh, do it for their partner, knowing that it turns them on and, and maybe getting off on the fact that they can give their partner pleasure in that way, um, that is, uh, that, that's obviously the best case scenario. Um, next best scenario is even though um, the person doesn't really find it to be a turn on, that they can engage with it, uh, you know, every now and again even if it doesn't turn them on or they don't find anything with it that, that they find exciting. Then there are people, to the people who are afraid to do it because they don't know how to do it, um, I think your fear is very, very uh, well-placed because it is true that a lot of the things that we do within BDSM can be very dangerous if the person does not know how to uh, do those things in a way that perhaps hurts but doesn't harm the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what we're aiming for. And so for those people, I would say seek out education. Find somebody who can show you how to do those things safely. That's why a, a huge amount of my practice is actually education with couples because many, many people are in that scenario. For the people who, um, who cannot get their heads around it, either because it's a trigger for them or they just uh, they find it distasteful or they find it to be something that they don't want to do, it's important for you to also respect your own boundary around it. Because if you feel that strongly about not doing it, crossing that boundary is actually dishonoring yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, you want to honor that, that that's a hard limit for you. But in doing that, you also want to recognize that it's, it is a desire for your partner. So finding some way to compromise on getting that need, particular need met uh, for your partner um, will can can foster greater intimacy and connection between the two of you because they they will they will love you for being able to um, hold a space for them to be themselves and uh, and they will also uh, respect your decision for not engaging with it yourself hopefully this is a you know best case scenario um, and uh, and to find a place where that person can uh, can explore that, uh, perhaps, you know, within a structure or within boundaries or whatever, uh, so they can get that need met. I would say about 75 to 80% of the people who come to see me are people who are in relationships with people who do not share the same desires as they do. Um, and, uh, and for many, not for all, but for many, their partners have said, Go find a place to do this where you're not going to get killed <laughs> and that isn't going to interfere with our relationship. Mm-hmm. And so many people book in a visit with me as like a, a they call they call it their dentist appointment or their, oh. <laughs> their doctor appointment. And they, you know, they come see me for their for their rope bondage or for their spanking or whatever, and they go home and, and it 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 serves that same function in their life of maintaining their well-being and equilibrium. Uh, and it's not about romance and it's not about sex and it's not about, you know, uh, uh, cheating or, or stuff like that. It's just simply about getting getting that need met. That's so interesting. That actually sparked a, a question just off the top of my head here, which yeah. is, would that be considered, would you consider that cheating in a relationship if someone comes there? Because you said that you're, you, you know, these scenes aren't 
necessarily they're not sex they're they're um other forms of pleasure so would you consider that a partner cheating on their partner if they weren't to have talked to their partner about it and were to show up to their quote-unquote dentist session you know (laughs) to, yeah. you know, to see you. Um, and maybe it's more of a psychological thing. Um, you know, I read some of your testimonials on your site. And for some people, it seems that, um, you know, it's a psychological thing that they crave from you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, in regards to that, it's always a, it's always a question on people's minds. And the definition of cheating um, really is something that each person has to define for themselves because the the you know ultimately you're the one you know we're all adults and as an adult you have to live with the outcome of your decisions yeah so you, you need to be able to decide if for you and in your and or in your relationship you know you may have a conversation with your partner about it you know would it would it be considered cheating if i went and saw a professional dominatrix for xyz as long as there was no sex or, you know, those kinds of, because it's, it's not, um, it's not a physically intimate or a fluid exchange type of experience, generally speaking. Right. So, but Mm -hmm. many people don't know that. So um, each person has to decide for themselves whether they feel like paying a visit to a professional is something that is, that is cheating or not, because you're going to have an entire, I've met people for whom it's it is definitely cheating, and I've met people for who who really don't mind and and don't care and and appreciate it. Um, so, you know, it, and people can fall anywhere on that spectrum. So when it comes to sort of like moral things and and values and that kind of stuff, I don't like setting objective standards because I think each person and each couple has to make those decisions for themselves. Interesting. I wanted to ask you a quick question. Um, You brought up the concept of the spectrum, right? Like some people fall all over the spectrum and that's the case for everything in life. Yeah. When we began speaking this afternoon, um, you were saying how just because you're into this community doesn't mean you're into everything. So my question for you is, do you find for clients that come back um, that once they may have initially thought, these certain parts don't interest me, but these do, that that evolves or people genuinely remain the same with their interests upon beginning it and continuing with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's an excellent question. Uh, I would say that for people, uh, there are certain people who have a very specific fetish um, and that fetish is really the only thing that they're interested in and for those people, uh, let's say a spanking fetishist or a leather fetishist or a pantyhose fetishist and so on. And for those people, uh, the, the presence of that fetish is what is turning them on. So they actually, um, there isn't nothing more complicated to it than that for them. And those type of people tend to come back for, for the meeting of that same need. Then you have people who um, are into power exchange, uh, but it doesn't matter so much what they're doing as the fact that they are able to be submissive or the bottom in that encounter. So now these are people who, as long as there is somebody else calling the shots, 
are willing to explore a whole variety of different things. Um, and because their kink is not necessarily the thing you're doing, it's the, uh, it's the, the psychological dynamic. It's somebody having control and them being able to surrender control. Yeah. Right. So, um, so for those types of people, uh, it can look like many different things and it can evolve. Then you get people in who just are newer to kink. And I, and this is why I love, I love it when, when people who are new to kink access professionals, because it's kind of becomes the dungeon kind of becomes their science lab where they can try all kinds of things and then come away from it after and go, you know what? I really love that thing that we did. Um, it really turned me on. And I'm, I now I know that I want more of that in my life. But mm-hmm. that thing over there that we did, you know, that really didn't do much for me. I, I think I, I was okay to experience that once and I don't need to do it again. Yeah. Right. So as a, just as a purely as a place where you could explore lots of different facets of your, uh, of your erotic and fantasy world, um, it, it has that benefit to it. And those p- type of people tend to kind of try different things before they uh, either settle on one thing or, or a few things or um, realize that they're into most things. <laughs> I think this is the final question on my end uh, is how early on, if this is something that you're into, how early on would you talk to a potential partner about this um, and be open about it because you know there may be compatibility issues down the line if you weren't you know going to bring up that you're into this and maybe they're not but also it may come across as too much to bring it up on say a first date or a second date yeah yeah no i I, there are a lot of people who are concerned about that and and what i would say is that um you know, when it comes to being open with potential sexual partners or potential, you know, romantic partners, um, we tend to make our sexual needs less important than our compatibility in other areas. And if you're looking to date somebody long term, um, unfortunately, you know, how we're wired sexually tends to be how we're wired. And the longer you wait to tell the person and the more, for example, you're falling for them or they're falling, falling for you. Um, and then you spring something on them. They may or may not be willing to go there with you. Uh, and so as far as, as at least how I like to engage in dating and relationships, um, I, I prefer to put things on the table, uh, as soon as we start having a conversation about, about sex and, and fantasies and that kind of stuff. Um, because, you know, so I would say if it's, if it's what I would say, if it's early enough in the relationship to be talking about sex and, and sexual desires, maybe, you know, a safe sex and those kinds of things, then your kinks and fetishes probably want to come out on the table at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the person can't handle it, uh, or isn't willing to, uh, it's better to know that personally, I think it's better to know that at the start of a relationship than, um, than, you know, six months down the line when I'm very invested in that person. Right. Yeah. So maybe not the first thing, but maybe the third. <laughs> yeah. Like, like as I think, you know, for some people like talking about sex at the outset, some people takes them a little while to talk about sex and, and where, wherever that is on the spectrum for you, that's totally fine. Um, but if you're starting to talk about sex and sexual pro- proclivities, you want your actual fantasies as much as possible, as much as you feel safe doing uh, to, to factor into the conversation. And yeah, that sometimes means um, 
rejection or that sometimes means that um, the other person may not know how to handle that information. But you will feel better <laughs> having been true to yourself. Because oh, yeah. what I meet, I meet a lot of people who have been married for 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 years who uh, chose 40 years, let's say, down the road to tell their, their wives, you know, they have kids and grandkids that this is what they're into. And I can tell you it's much more difficult at that point. Yeah, it's like teaching a dog new tricks, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. And, and inevitably there's some kind of response like, you know, well, you're not the person I married or why wow. did you wait so long to tell me or, you know, so it, it can, it, it can feel at that point kind of like um, you've been holding a secret back from your partner, yeah. which is really great for promoting intimacy and honesty within the, within the relationship. Wow. Uh, I guess to wrap things up, do you have any, uh, you know, myths that you would like to, um, squash and uh and if you could also you know share how people could reach you in case they're interested in a session with you whether that is uh you know a consultation or kink counseling or something more um if you can go into that as well that'd be awesome yes absolutely so um let me let me debunk one myth uh which is that all dominatrixes are uh cruel and bitchy and cold or that you have to be one of those things in order to be a dominant and what i want to say to you is that there are many as many different styles of being a dominant as there are people in this world uh, and you will find if this is something that interests you your own spin on how you express your dominance Similarly, there is not one way of being a submissive. There are as many different ways of being submissive as there are people in the world. And you will find your particular way of expressing your submission that is, um, that is true to who you are and your own individuality. So don't let anybody tell you that there is one way to do BDSM, one way in which it looks, uh, one proper way. Uh, you will encounter people like that in the community. And what I would say to you is please uh, do not give it heart because it is, it is simply not true. And if people want to get a hold of me, I'd be very happy to hear from you. Uh, my website is www.theritualchamber.ca. And all of our services are, uh, are detailed on the website. I am the person that answers the uh, email. So uh, if you write in using our contact form, I will be the person who answers you. Uh, and feel free to mention that you heard me on the podcast. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been very educational and it was a pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys too. I really appreciate it when people are looking to gain more knowledge about BDSM. Yes, and thank you for sharing in such an open and non-judgmental way. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, as always, if our listeners want to uh, reach out to us, we're available on Instagram at Is This Adulthood, as well as at ITA underscore podcast on Twitter. My Instagram is at Ryan Dergy. My Instagram is KTWE Jones, and my Twitter is 01Katie Jones. And would you like to share your social media handle? Absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram. The handle is The Alchemical Seductress. And on Twitter, at Shahrazad, S-H-A-H-R-A-Z-A-D, capital T-R-C. 
So at Charizard TRC or at Ritual Chamber TO on Twitter. Fantastic. That's well, amazing. During uh, these hard times. And uh, yeah, you have yourself a wonderful day. You guys too. Take care. Thanks for joining Take care. us. Thank you. Bye. Bye.